When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very much looking forward to this conversation with Dr. Lior Lairs about his book titled Unofficial Peace Diplomacy, Private Peace Entrepreneurs in Conflict Resolution Processes, um, out in 2022 from Manchester University Press. Um, I found this book really interesting because it looks at a phenomenon of private peace entrepreneurs, and we'll get into exactly what that means. Um, But as someone who studies peace processes myself, I found this fascinating because these are sort of people that are often really important in certain peace processes, but kind of go under the radar, are not really sort of, we notice them in the archive, but don't necessarily pay attention to them. Um, And this book, thankfully, solves that problem and fills that gap by investigating who these people are and what they're doing. Um, and really adds a lot of, I think, interesting ways in and perspective to understanding peace processes. So, Lior, I'm very pleased to welcome you to the podcast to tell us about your book. Thank you very much, Miranda. It's great to be here. Could you start us off, please, by introducing yourself a little bit and explaining why you decided to write this book? Yeah, uh, so my name is Leo Lers, and my research field in general is international relations, more specifically peace and conflict and diplomacy and foreign policy. And I've been working over the years on different conflicts, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, Northern Ireland, Cyprus, Kosovo, and Bosnia. And now I'm a research fellow at the Leonard Davis Institute in the Hebrew University in Jerusalem. And I was also doing a postdoc in NYU, and I was a visiting scholar in Johns Hopkins University. And I think that the starting point of this research project was actually doing my studies when, as uh, in my first degree and second degree in international relations and Middle East studies in the Hebrew University, when I was especially interested in the Israeli-Arab, Israeli-Palestinian conflict, and I was trying really to trace all the history of the peace efforts and all the diplomatic contacts all over the years of the conflict. And I was reading whatever I can doing all of my studies. And I noticed that the literature and all the scholarship that we have focused almost entirely on the official sphere, on the official channels, the official negotiation, official mediation. But as I get deeper and deeper into the research, especially towards my PhD, I noticed that beside all of these well-known official channels, there have been many, many less known, less researched uh, unofficial channels and unofficial peace efforts that were actually initiated, as you mentioned, by private actors. And you can see that over and over again during the different stages of this conflict from the beginning until recently. And sometimes these private actors actually played a critical role 
in the peacemaking process. And then I started to look on other cases, other conflicts around the world, and I found more and more cases from the same phenomenon. And then I was wondering why they were excluded from the literature, the theoretical literature, and from the historical textbook. And as you can see that there are so many cases of these actors and this phenomenon, but still the literature has not been addressed and has not paid much attention to this unique actor and to this unique phenomenon and the impact. That's why I decided to do this project that eventually started as a PhD leading to this book in order to try to define this actor and to outline a theoretical framework to analyze these private peace entrepreneurs, their impact, and also to shed lights of some of these actors that were excluded from the textbook until today. That's what I found so helpful about um, the book is not just the case studies and examples it looks at, which of course we'll get into, but the fact that you've thought about this theoretically as well and proposed a framework so that we can think about this for cases that are not covered in the book um, and think about kind of what this looks like as a type. Um, So I think we're probably going to get into quite a few of those points through the course of the interview. Um, But now that we know a little bit about kind of where the project started, um, the obvious other piece we need as a foundation for the rest of the discussion is, can you tell us what is a private peace entrepreneur? Yes. So in one sentence, private peace entrepreneurs are private citizens without official authority who initiate unofficial channels of communications with official representatives from the other side of the conflict to promote process of conflict resolution. So this is just in one sentence. But in order to really understand the the definition, we need to look on four important elements in this definition that actually in order to understand the boundaries of this phenomenon. When the first important point is that we are talking about private citizens, they don't have official authority to outline or to conduct foreign policy or to negotiate peace. Nobody nominated them, nobody elected them. They're actually self-appointed diplomats. The second point is that these actors actually belong to one of the disputing sides. So they're actually local actors. They are part of the conflict. I'm not talking about external actors that are trying to interfere in the conflict. And the third element is that they create channels of communication with officials from the other side of the conflict. So it's also different from what we call in the literature track to diplomacy or people to people diplomacy when private citizens meet with private citizens from the other side of the conflict. Here we are talking about individual private citizens that their goal is to talk and to approach officials from the other side of the conflict. And the last point is that their goal eventually is to promote process of conflict resolution when the specific goal in each case can go through a wide spectrum from resolving a specific crisis, some kind of a crisis management, to drafting a comprehensive peace agreement. In each case, you can see different types, but all of them are part of the goal of promoting peacemaking and conflict resolution. Thank you for explaining um, kind of the pieces of that. And as you said, it sort of sounds really simple in one sentence, um, but there's a lot to unpack within that, uh, which you do in the book through the sort of typology, the framework, and of course, um, some case studies to go into detail. So can you tell us which case studies you chose and how did you choose to look at those particular cases? Yeah, so as you mentioned, the book actually combines theoretical discussion when I use different theoretical tools from different fields, from international relations, from diplomacy, from civil society, conflict resolution, peace studies, negotiation, 
together with historical analysis of four main case studies of private peace entrepreneurs from different conflicts. And I'm talking about four cases. The first case is about Norman Cousins, that was a journalist, and about his role in promoting negotiation between the US and the Soviet Union during the 60s, during Kennedy and, and Khrushchev, about the nuclear task ban treaty. He was a journalist, he was, a, he was also an anti-nuclear activist. The second case is about Susan Massey. She was an American writer and a scholar and about her efforts between also the United States and the Soviet Union during the 80s, during the Reagan and uh, Gorbachev, and also the way she influenced uh, Reagan over these years. The third case is from the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, and it's focusing on Uri Avneri, that was also a journalist and a peace activist, an Israeli private peace entrepreneur, that actually developed contact with the PLO, the Palestinian organization, already in the mid of the 70s and during the 80s, when it was considered a taboo in Israel to talk about even negotiating or meeting with the PLO. In some parts, it was even against the law to do that. And the last case is from Northern Ireland. And here it's a very interesting case of Brandon Daddy, that was a businessman living in the city of Derry or Londonderry. And he was, and uh, I was, I'm talking about his mediation efforts between the two sides, between the British and the Republican movements, the IRA and the Sinn Féin. So these are the four cases. In addition to these four cases, I also created a database of 40 cases of private peace entrepreneurs in order to learn about the full range of this phenomenon and to have a broad empirical uh, empirical field in order to analyze this phenomenon and to talk about the typology. Now, about the case selection, I can say that what was important for me in these four cases was to take cases that are actually different in, in different aspects and different conditions. So they are from different conflicts, different periods, different types of conflict, different types of private peace entrepreneurs, different initiatives, and also different results and impact on the official diplomatic sphere in order, again, to see the full range of this uh, phenomenon. And maybe I can say just one word about also the framework, uh, the time framework. I was interested in focusing on the 60s, 70s, and 80s, because usually in the literature of international relations, we are saying that a process such as unofficial diplomacy and citizen diplomacy started mainly after the end of the Cold War, together with globalization, democratization, development in technology and communication. What I wanted to show in this book is that even though you will see more of these cases after the end of the Cold War and there is more awareness to this phenomenon of citizen diplomacy, you can actually, this is not a new phenomenon. This is not a new actor. And you have these cases much before that, even the years before that. And I think that, that this is actually the years of the transformative, transformative stage of the development of unofficial diplomacy. That's why I wanted to focus on cases from these years before the end of the Cold War. Hmm. That's a good reason to focus on those cases. Thank you for um, bringing that to our attention. Um, I kind of want to dive into a bunch of the parts of your framework and hopefully bring in some of the examples um, you've mentioned from those case studies and start with maybe the question from sort of someone unfamiliar with this idea, right? Because if you think about the definition that you've provided us with, a key distinction that I'm glad you made was between private peace entrepreneurs and track two diplomacy. And the idea of a private citizen of one country somehow being able to access an official of not just another country, but a country that 
the private citizen is actually somehow an enemy of um, seems like a tall order, seems like a big ask. You know, how can a private citizen manage not just to create that kind of contact, um, but sort of do something with it? And so I was wondering if you could tell us about the part of your framework um, that discusses the types of resources that PPEs might have in creating and using these connections. Yeah, so this was actually one of the main questions I was dealing with in my research from the beginning, as you mentioned, because this is a real puzzle because we are talking about private citizens. They don't have the official authority and they don't have the resources that states have, that international organizations have, the military, the economic resources, the political resources. They are just private citizens. So it really raises the question of what are the alternative unofficial resources. So in my in the book, I would try to identify some of the main power resources that I found. Uh, one of them is resources of knowledge and expertise. And here I found that the fact that these private citizens actually meet and, and talk and have meetings and discussion with officials from the other side of the conflict actually provide them with a very important knowledge and information about the two sides. And when we are talking about cases of ongoing conflict, when the parties don't have even official relation, official recognition between them, this actually can be an exclusive knowledge information that these actors have and can actually provide them with a very important power resource. Uh, I mentioned the case of Susan Messi, uh, and she was actually an expert about Russia, about the Soviet Union, about Russian uh, society. And she traveled frequently to Russia. And I'm talking about the peak moment in the Cold War during the 80s when there was almost no contact between the parties. And she had a lot of networks in in Russia, in different parts of the society, including with officials that were close to Gorbachev. And based on that, eventually she gained access to the White House and to President Reagan. And he started to meet with her and to consult with her about the question of the Cold War and how eventually to end uh, the Cold War. And it was mainly based on her expertise and knowledge visiting Soviet Union. And George Schultz, for example, the Secretary of State, wrote in his memoir that he learned a lot from Susan Messi about things related to Soviet Union that he couldn't find in the official intelligence briefing. So she had a different kinds of information and knowledge that was very helpful. Uh, another type of resources is also the resources of contacts and access and networks. When some of these actors were able to get these resources, that was something that was a very important power Resources, I mentioned Brandon Daddy from Northern Highland, and he just had a fish and chips restaurant in the center of a dairy, a London dairy. And, but over the years, he started to develop very good contacts on both sides of the conflict with leaders in the Republican movement, like Rory O'Brady, like Martin McGuinness, that was actually working in his restaurant, but at the same time, also contact in the British side. And based on these resources, he was able to play the role of a secret back channel between the two parts, the two sides of the conflict for almost 20 years, during the most difficult years of the conflict, the 70s, the 80s, and the beginning of the 90s. So that was based on his uh, access and networking uh, resources. In addition, sometimes you have also moral and spiritual authority, especially when we are talking about religious private peace entrepreneurs or intellectuals. And sometimes you also have tactical resources, for example, the power of the neability, that because they are private citizens, they can say to the decision makers, you actually have nothing to lose. If it will fail, 
you can always distance yourself. You can say you deny connection. I have nothing to do with it. We are talking about private citizen. But if it will work, you can always use it as an official tool. And this is a very important advantage for only for unofficial actors. Thank you for explaining uh, the types of resources, particularly because they do vary, as you said, between the cases. Um, That's really interesting to think about how those, in some cases, intangible aspects can solve the problem of sort of how a private citizen is able to um, do this. But obviously not all private citizens are able to do this. Um, It's not just some amorphous pool where everyone's equal. So what did you find were the main types of private peace entrepreneurs? And what kinds of people tend to be able to kind of make this happen? Yeah, so I actually found in my research that uh, private peace entrepreneurs can actually, they can come from different fields, from different professional backgrounds, from different types of private peace entrepreneurs. And I tried to identify some of the main prototype when you can see that each type actually has different resources or different tools, but also different challenges uh, related to their context and to the, the advantages and disadvantages that they have. So I can mention some of examples. For example, there are many journalists, private peace entrepreneurs, when they actually use the fact that they, the tools that they have, the networking that they have as journalists in part of the media, it can actually be useful for them in their peace efforts as private peace entrepreneurs. And I mentioned, for example, Uri Avneri, the case from the Israeli-Palestinian case. He's also in the co- on the cover of the book. And he was a journalist. He was the editor of a very popular uh, weekly uh, in Israel, Aulamazeh. And he was able to use uh, the tools that he has as a journalist to get the peace activities, to promote his peace activities with the PLO. For example, to use the networks that he had with other international journalists in order to get and to meet with Palestinians and Arab representatives. He also was able to use his newspaper that he can do whatever he wants in his newspaper and to, for example, publish the meeting that he had with uh, Palestinians, publishing it in his, in his newspaper, and sometimes also using the cover of journalists in order to get to different places. For example, the cover of the book, you can see a meeting that was taking place between Uri Avneri and the leader of the PLO, Arafat, in the middle of the war in Lebanon. And they are meeting in Beirut during the war. And he was able to get to Lebanon just because he is an Israeli journalist and he had a permission from the army to get to Lebanon because he's a journalist and eventually it helped him to meet with Arafat. Uh, another example, another type is the religious private peace entrepreneurs. And there are many, many cases of local religious leaders that are trying to get involved in these private peace initiatives. And they sometimes can use a lot of religious resources, religious authority, religious status that can be very, very useful, especially when we are talking about societies that are more religious or especially in conflict, that religion is an important aspect in these cases. There is another case I mentioned in the book of priest Alex Reed from Northern Ireland, that he was the one who actually brought together Jerry Adams and John Hume uh, during the 80s. And he actually brought them to his church in Belfast as a neutral place that they can meet. And they trusted him mainly because he's a religious leader and they thought that he's, he's working for the good intention, not he has no has a political interest or something like that. And there are also other types, sometimes also business leaders, that they the fact that they have resources, the fact that they have a lot of networks, especially when they have international networks, that can be very useful for uh, being a private peace entrepreneur. 
there are also sometimes academics, intellectuals, also former officials, and sometimes also people from the diaspora. And regarding the second question about what kind of people usually you will see that is getting involved into these activities, I was trying to address this question in two different ways. One is to look on the social characteristics of these actors. You will, we will see, I found in my research in, for all of these 40 cases that usually we are talking about men and very few cases of women. I think it's especially because I was looking on the historical period before the end of the Cold War. And I think that this is something that changed. It was very sad to see that we know usually that there is no representation of women in the official diplomacy. So here we can see that also in the unofficial uh, diplomacy, even though we can see a lot of women organization involved in, in different peacemaking efforts in Vietnam, in North Ireland, in Israel, Palestine, but not exactly this kind of activities. Usually we are also talking about people that are not young, even uh, during the 50s, during the 60s. I think because they need to develop the networks and the reputation and the expertise in order to get involved in these activities and also to feel that they are confident enough in order to take risk with these kind of activities. And also usually in the middle, upper uh, socioeconomic status, uh, also because they need resources and they need the time to get involved and to have the strong basis uh, to work on these activities. And the second way I try to address this question is to try to, uh, to analyze the psychological profile of these people. Even though I'm not an expert on psychology, I can't say a lot about, about this aspect, but I found a few common elements in all of the people that I've, de- I've been dealing with in this research. For example, the important element of optimism that you can find in all of the cases that people are strongly believe that the conflict can be resolved easily, even in the most difficult times, and also the fact that they believe that they can have the impact. Another thing is that I found that most of the cases, the people have some, they are familiar with the people from the other side of the conflict from very young age. So they don't have the perception, what we call the enemy image, about the other side, the legitimization or dehumanization of the other side, because they actually met the people from the other side for many years. Brendan Daddy, for example, was from a mixed uh, neighborhood in a mixed city. Uri Avneri met a lot of Palestinians and Arabs he working with for many, many years. And I also felt that in many cases, there also there is a sense of mission in many of these private peace entrepreneurs from different reasons, from different motivation. And usually they're also very individualist uh, in their thinking and, and in their lifestyle. Hmm. Very interesting combination of things. Um, You've mentioned them a little bit already, but I was wondering if you could tell us a bit more about the sort of advantages of having PPEs involved, um, maybe compared to other kinds of mediators or conflict brokers. Yeah, so this is a good question because usually in first look, you will say that the, the international mediators, they have all the resources, they have a lot of power, so what is actually the advantage of these unofficial actors? But going over this research, and I think this is part of a trend that you will see more and more in, in the research on peace studies, that actually sometimes the local unofficial actors can also be very, very important. And sometimes they can have advantage even better, even more than the, the official international actors. This is what we call the local turn in the peace, peace studies and the peace building literature. But sometimes the fact that we are talking about the local peacemakers, local peace builders, such as the private peace entrepreneurs, 
they have a lot of knowledge and a lot of experience and a lot of information and expertise that the international actors don't have. They live in the conflict. They are part of the conflict. Some of the cases that I'm working on, they actually devoted their life 20, 30, 40 years of their life only on this issue of conflict resolution. So they know everything about the sensitivity, about the language, about the local culture of the conflict, much better than everyone that is coming from outside of the conflict, interfering just for a few months or a few years and then disappearing. And I think that they this is a very important advantage. Sometimes also the official will be able to trust these local peacemakers much more than they will trust the external actors. So this is also an important part. I also found that in some cases, uh, the parties will prefer that external actors will not interfere in the conflict, especially in internal conflict, because they don't want another actor with with another interest, because if you have another international actor, it will turn into a triangle. You have also, especially if you're talking about superpower, that they have their own interests, they have their own issues, so it will get more complicated. So sometimes they will prefer to work with local actors and then they are not going to expose all the information for another international actors. And I think that another very important issue is that because we are talking about unofficial actors, you have the question of deniability that I mentioned and the power of secrecy that nobody knows nobody knows about these private actors. They can move freely from one capital to another to exchange messages, and nobody will know about it. So if you want to use a secret diplomacy, especially at the beginning of the process, this is a very good way to do that. And it's also much more flexible because we are talking about informal diplomacy. This is what Churchill called the black market diplomacy. And that can be something that usually sometimes the parties will prefer that because it's a way to explore different ideas at the beginning of the process before moving to official process. Those are some definite advantages. Um, But of course, it's not all just the solution is get a private peace entrepreneur. Um, But that would be too simple. So what are the disadvantages or what are some of the challenges that maybe PPEs face that other kinds of mediators wouldn't? Yeah. So, uh, of course, when we are comparing these private peace entrepreneurs to the big international mediators, uh, it's very, very clear that the big problem is that they don't have the official resources that the international uh, mediators have. When, when we are talking about Jimmy Carter between Israel and Egypt in Camp David, for example, 78, or when we are talking about Richard Holbrook, uh, the American mediator in Bosnia in the 90s, they have, of course, a lot of economic resources. They can offer, they have also security. They can offer security guarantee. They can also use threats. They can also suggest a lot of economic incentive. And they have a lot of leverage and that they can push the actors, they can push the parties. And of course, private business entrepreneurs don't have any of this. They can't offer a lot of incentive and they, it's very difficult for them to push or to threat because they are just private citizens. So this is... A one problem. Another problem, as we already mentioned, is how to get access to official actors as private citizen. They don't have the official authority. They don't have the official mandate. Sometimes it can take years until the official actors will pay attention for them. And I also notice in some cases that even when they get influence or access to one actors, then these actors can actually move to a different position or maybe you have a different uh, political change and then they need to rebuild again all the networking and all 
the contact that they already had. Sometimes they can also have a lot of criticism from the public against these activities because they're actually meeting with the enemy. And during very difficult conflict, sometimes there is a lot of backlash against them, claiming that they don't have the legitimacy to do that, they're actually helping the enemy, or they don't have the skills to do that, they need to let the officials deal with these issues. And in many of the cases that I was working on in my book, you can see that people actually pay the price and actually take risk for these activities. Sometimes they went to a very dangerous areas during the war zone, like I mentioned with Uri Avneri going to Beirut during the war. Sometimes they found themselves isolated in their communities, sometimes even investigation against them or things like that. I think that was one of the things that was really interesting is this idea of responses uh, to the private peace entrepreneurs. And we've spoken a little bit already. You've told us about um, the response kind of by the officials on the other side, a little bit just now about kind of the public's reaction. Um, I was wondering if you could tell us a bit about how the governments of the citizens' own sides react from kind of their own private citizens making these kinds of connections. Yeah, so I think that eventually this question about the relation between the private peace entrepreneurs and the official establishment, official decision makers, this is a crucial factor. This is a very important question because eventually if they want to promote conflict resolution, they need to influence the official actors. So that this is why it's really important, the relationship. And this is a very complex relationship because we are talking about the official decision makers. And usually they don't like that someone, a private actors are, are getting into their uh, foreign policy. They think that they have the monopoly, they have the authority to conduct foreign policy and to negotiate. And they don't like that someone is actually trying to challenge that. So in my research, I actually identified three main response patterns of uh, the official establishment toward the activities of the private peace entrepreneurs. Uh, I'm talking about resistance, indifference, and endorsement. And the first one, resistance, that is very, very common. I think maybe this is even a natural reaction uh, that you will see that in many cases, the official establishment, the official decision makers will try to do whatever they can to stop these activities to prevent these activities because they don't want that private citizen will interfere in the most important issues of war and peace. Sometimes they can even have some legislations. There sometimes there are even laws against these kind of activities. In the U.S., there is the Logan Act that exists for more than two centuries um, that are actually prohibiting private citizen to do these kind of meetings and contact with foreign government. And it's interesting that. This Logan Act is actually a result of a private peace initiative that took place in 1798 by George Logan. This is one of the historical cases of private peace entrepreneurs that I mentioned. He was doing a private peace initiative with France in order to prevent a war between the U.S. and France. And when he came back, they decided to do this Logan Act in order to make sure that nobody will do it again. Also in Israel, there used to be a law in the 80s that is against the law to meet with the PLO for Israelis private citizen. Sometimes they're also doing restriction on movement. For example, when some American peace activists go went to meet during the Vietnam War with the leadership in North Vietnam, when they came back, they confiscated their passport because they went to an enemy state. Sometimes they can actually use discursive tool, claiming that they are traitors, claiming that they are just naive, or different ways to criticize these kind of activities. 
And the second pattern is a more a middle ground in between pattern is the indifference. When sometimes government agree to listen, maybe even to meet with these actors, but again, to show them that they, there is no any support or they are not going to use these kind of activities, they are just ready to listen. And the case of Uri Avneri that I mentioned in the Israeli-Palestinian case, I noticed that I, in the 70s, when Yitzhak Rabin was the prime minister in Israel in the 70s, in his first term, actually Uri Avneri came to him and told him about the meeting that he's doing secretly with the PLO. And Rabin's reaction was very, very interesting. He told him, I'm against meeting with the PLO because I think they are a terrorist organization, but you can do whatever you want as a private citizen, and I'm ready to listen to you. My door is always open if you want to tell me about this meeting. So this is a very good example for indifference. And it's interesting because Rabin was the one who eventually signed the Oslo Accords with the PLO 20 years after that. And the third case, the third pattern is the endorsement. When official and decision makers actually decide to support these activities and actually to try to use it as an official tool. And this pattern was especially interesting for me in my research because here you can actually see the meeting point between the unofficial sphere and the official sphere and how the private initiative can actually transform into an official uh, policy, into official peace initiative. And um, you can see different cases when actually government decide to use, uh, sometimes they can use, it can be done in different ways. They can use the channels of the private peace entrepreneurs, sometimes they can use some of their ideas, and this is the cases that we can consider as the most successful because then you can actually have a clear impact on the official uh, diplomacy. Hmm. I think that Rabin one is fascinating um, given kind of what we know happens later. So I'm glad you mentioned that one. Um, I think one thing that is worth discussing a bit is this idea of timing and stages because um, any of us that study peace processes uh, either kind of before a treaty or afterwards sequencing timing stages are really really important right you've already mentioned kind of one of the usefulness of a pp is sort of at the beginning of negotiations when everything's you know secrecy might be a little bit more helpful to see if the doors are open Um, and so i really appreciated the part of your book that looked at kind of the patterns and stages um, of PPEs that we can sort of see over time. So I was wondering if you could tell us a bit more about kind of these action patterns um, and maybe take us through an example. Yeah, so I found like we can talk about, I think, two main uh, action patterns of the private PC entrepreneurs looking on all the many cases that I was working on when in the first one is when we are talking about the more secretly uh, action, as you mentioned, when the private business entrepreneurs are working under the radar, just trying to talk and to uh, communicate with both parties, the official and both parties, and to try to bring them together. In many cases, it can be, as you mentioned, in the pre-negotiation stage, when the actors are much more open to consider these flexible and Non, uh, non, uh, non-traditional, maybe we can call it the diplomacy, because there is still no official recognition, there are still no official channels. But as part of this action pattern, the private peace entrepreneurs are working secretly, they are meeting with both sides and try to convince them to try to meet one another or maybe to exchange messages between them to serve as a mediator between them or maybe to promote a specific initiative or a specific idea. When here, in this action pattern, the most important thing is the secrecy. 
And this is a very important advantage because sometimes the official will agree to do that only because they know that it will be kept as a secret. I mentioned the case of Brandon Daddy that for 20 years was a secret back channel between the British and the IOA during the most difficult years and nobody knew about it. It was published only many, many years after that, after the peace agreement. I even interviewed his family and many of the people in his family actually had no idea. They knew that something is going on but they had no idea that he's actually mediating between the two parties uh, in the conflict. And the second important part in this action pattern is trust. They, we, we need that both parties would actually trust these private peace entrepreneurs, that they can deliver messages, that they will give uh, an accurate report. So this is also something that is very difficult to achieve. And the second action pattern that I found in some of the cases is more public activity, when the main goal is not to work with the leaders, is actually to convince the public opinion. Usually, I found these cases when the private peace entrepreneurs thought that they are not going to convince the leaders because it seems that the leaders are not interested in promoting peace. So they said, okay, let's try to convince the public opinion. And then they are not going to work secretly under the radar. The opposite, they are trying to publish as much as possible their meetings and their peace efforts in order to try to use it as a tool to change the agenda, to change the perception of the public, to change the enemy image, to show that there is a partner in the other side. And the case of Uri Avneri I mentioned, this is a, a very good example for the public activity. And he was a journalist, he was an editor, so he was able to use his newspaper in order to show the public as much as possible his activity and to publish the meeting that he had. Hmm. Very contrasting examples, again, showing uh, the usefulness of the case studies. Um, if we take all of these pieces together that we've talked about so far of your research, what would you say are the sort of factors or indicators that most enable PPEs to be successful in achieving their goals? Exactly. So in this, in the first, my first question of the Swiss is what to try to define this actor and to create this topology. But the second question in my research is actually to ask under which condition, or as you said, that the, which factors, I think that the, there is much higher chances that this actor will have better chances to have an influence or to have impact on the official diplomacy and better chances that official will listen to them or will have more influence on the officials. And I'm not talking about success or failures. It's not necessarily that they need to bring peace agreement, but I'm talking about the, their ability to have influence, to have impact, and the fact that officials will be able to use them in different ways in order to promote conflict resolution. And in order to do that, I in the book, I actually looked on different conditions, different factors in, in three main levels. The first one is factors related to the private peace entrepreneurs themselves, the different types or the different uh, background that they have. The second level is more about the initiative, the topic of the initiative, what kind of initiative, if it's secretly or publicly. And the third is to look on the external variables, the situation in the conflict, the leaders, and different external variables related uh, also to this uh, private peace uh, initiatives. And eventually I was trying to identify the main factors that I can say under, it, under this condition, there are better chances for them to be more effective as peacemakers. And I can say as part of my conclusion, uh, to mention maybe three main insights that I found. 
The first one is actually referring to the point that you mentioned about the stage in the conflict. I found that they have much better potential to be effective and to have influence in the beginning, in the pre-negotiation phase, when you don't have official negotiation, you don't have official relation, and the uh, parties and the officials are much more open to use these kind of unofficial actors or unofficial channels because it's much easier for them at this stage before the official process uh, to use these kind of actors. And I found in many conflicts, in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, in Northern Ireland, in Vietnam, in South Africa, that actually these actors, the unofficial actors, serve as a diplomatic avant-garde. They actually created the first contact They came before the official actors. They created the infrastructure. Later on, moved to the official negotiation, official contact. So they played actually a very important role at the beginning of the process. Uh, Another conclusion that I found is more about the topic of the initiative. And I found that when the topic or the goal of the initiative is more limited, it's more modest, it's not trying to talk about the sensitive issues or trying to change the long-term political uh, strategy, but more specifically on a very specific crisis or specific issue, they also had much better chances to influence, um, to have a successful initiative. And I found it, especially when we are talking about issues like releasing hostages or releasing prisoners. And in many cases, when private peace entrepreneurs try to get involved in these issues, in the humanitarian initiative, just to try to work between the parties to find way to... Uh, to free uh, hostages or or to exchange prisoners, then they had much better chances to succeed. Uh, There was a very interesting case in Israel, uh, Gershon Baskin, that is an Israeli peace activist for many, many years. And in 2011, there was a case of an Israeli soldier that was captured in Gaza by Hamas, Gilad Shalit. And at some point, Israeli government wanted to negotiate with Hamas. And all of the other channels disappeared or collapsed. So eventually the Israeli government decided to use Gershon Basking channel with Hamas uh, just in order to deal, to have some negotiation about releasing the Israeli soldier. And eventually this unofficial channel between Gershon Basking and Hamas helped to get into a breakthrough and an agreement between Israel and Hamas about how to release these soldiers. But all the other initiative that he was trying to promote about peace agreement, that was something that failed. But the fact that he was focusing on a very specific issue at this point uh, was much more uh, useful. And maybe just the last point, I found that when you have what I can call an internal agent inside the establishment that is actually supporting these kind of activities, that can be a game changer. And I'm not talking about decision makers or prime minister or president. Even the fact that you have some low-level diplomat or low-level uh, official in one of the governmental agencies that is actually a partner for these kind of activities, that can actually really help to promote these activities because you have a, a foot in the door, you have access to the official system and you have someone from inside that is helping you. And I found in many cases that even the fact that you have one internal agent like that, that can actually be a key factor for success to have much more influence and to promote official a policy. Very helpful conclusions, I think, for the wider literature and understanding. Um, so a great place to sort of wrap up talking about the book. Um, I do have one final question. Uh, the book is obviously out and available for people to read. 
So is there a project that you're working on now or have your eye on to work on next that you'd like to give us a sneak preview of? Uh, yeah, so actually my recent work and my recent research project are actually focused on a different uh, issue that it's dealing more with the international actors. So actually moving from the local unofficial actors to deal more with the role of the international community and different international actors and their involvement, mediation in peacemaking in different conflict areas. So I'm also here, I'm dealing with different conflicts, uh, the international involvement in Israel-Palestinian conflict, of course, also in Cyprus, the role of the UN in Cyprus, also dealing with uh, international involvement in Kosovo, Serbia, and also in Bosnia. And I'm working actually on different projects, looking on different aspects in this field. But the main goal is actually to identify the main practices that we can see in this international involvement and the influence that eventually they have on the different uh, conflict looking for example i was i have already published a few articles one article about what we call peace plans when sometimes international actors decide to put a plan on the table a specific text that is trying to suggest solution for different conflict we have the clinton plan in israel palestine we have the annan plan in Cyprus, so are trying to see what is exactly behind this strategy and if it's effective or not. And I can also say that another topic that I'm working on, uh, I've been working on over the years, but also today, is the question of divided cities. Because I'm, I was born and raised in Jerusalem, and I'm still working and teaching in Jerusalem, so I was working a lot on Jerusalem, but also on other divided cities like Belfast, like Nicosia, like Mitrovica. And that was something that it's also uh, I, ha- I was I was interested in to look on and on the question of of uh, urban peace. And now I'm involved in a research project together with other colleagues in the Hebrew University, looking on the differences between how we see peace in the city, how people in the city in divided cities see the idea of peace and what we call urban peace, municipal peace, and how it's different from the way we see state-centric peace and national peace when we are talking about other issues. Because talking about peace in a city, it's very different, different aspects, different actors. So this is also a topic that I'm interested in these days. Very fascinating topics. Thank you for sharing. If they become books, we'll have to have you back and you can tell us about them in more detail. Um, but in the meantime, the book that we've been mainly discussing, uh, listeners can go look at, is titled Unofficial Peace Diplomacy, Private Peace Entrepreneurs in Conflict Resolution Processes. Uh, Lior, thank you so much for sharing your time and expertise with us on the podcast. Thank you, Miranda. Thank you for the invitation.